Good evening, Boston. Welcome to BNN News. I'm Faith Maffedon. Thanks for tuning in. Halloween is just around the corner, but Boston can't wait. Last Friday, the city hosted the annual Halloween Children's Festival at Boston Common. Men at work? YMCA. But isn't this a Halloween party? Yes, it is. And residents showed up in all types of costumes on Friday evening as they gathered in Boston Common to celebrate the third annual Halloween Children's Festival. The night was a moment for family bonding while also reminding kids to embrace the holiday. It's a good cultural thing for kids to experience like American Halloween, seeing their friends, doing the whole trick-or-treating thing and it's really amazing in uh, Beacon Hill where you get like that experience of like old world you know houses and and scenery and you know just trick-or-treating it's it's really uh, it's really special. The festival offered a variety of activities, vendors and food. No matter what type of experience you were looking for you could find your spot in this community. A community much needed for everyone during this time of turmoil. We need to create a community. That's what helps us get out of the problems that are happening in the world. And so this is the kind of event that creates a community and makes Boston a great place to live. With the growing conflicts and violence around the world, Friday's event showed people there are still places that are safe. I feel like there's like a lot of um, like nice people in this community. So I feel like really safe that like their kids can like do whatever they want and like dance and they feel they don't feel embarrassed or anything. I think it's really important for communities to have somewhere where they can get together and feel safe where Halloween isn't scary like it can be in neighborhoods um, because it can it, it just really brings people together and they feel safe and they feel protected and they feel brought together by an awesome holiday. The following Children's Festival was presented by the Boston Parks and Recreation Department in partnership with the Skating Club of Boston. The city is dedicated to creating a safe space and community for all children and families. Affordable housing these days is few and far between, but the city of Boston is making it a little easier for people of color to find a place of their own. Those interested in becoming first-time homeowners in Boston are entering a daunting and competitive market. But last Thursday, rays of hope shone through as Mayor Wu and other city officials announced the development teams behind the first phase of Welcome Home Boston, a city initiative to use $58 million to accelerate the production of affordable housing. There is great inequality in home ownership in Boston. 44% of white homeowners buy a home, where only 30% of black families buy a, own a home, and 18 or 19% of Latinx families own a home. So hopefully by building new homes, affordable homes in our neighborhood, we're going to address that inequality. Too often in the past, you know, you'll see a big construction project of this nature announced that did not include people from the community in the development, construction, ownership, or engagement. That pattern has left black and brown res residents often feeling cynical about the housing density our neighborhoods desperately need. From the very beginning of this first phase from Welcome Home Boston, we are redefining what residents should expect from the development process. 
Repurposing empty city lots, Phase 1 aims to construct 63 affordable condo units. The mayor's housing office directly consulted with residents and community groups to learn how to best serve them. The four contracted construction companies are all minority or women-owned. Esadon is actually proud to really have this empty, vacant land from the city to turn into affordable housing that will really helping a lot of young professionals that we have been moving out of the state and the city because of lack of affordable housing. So this is going to be an opportunity for us to develop seven units that will really help those young professionals to remain in the city and become, you know, the backbone for our community. But this is an opportunity really to take renters who are in these homes today, literally across the street, and make them homeowners. That is truly the goal of this program. I've heard some people say we're moving too fast and should we hand out these lands? Absolutely. It is time to hand money to black developers, black architects, Hispanic architects, women, and sell it to people in our neighborhoods. This multi-phase initiative is part of the Black and Brown Economic Empowerment Agenda, launched by Councillor Brian Worrell, which seeks to lift up communities of color with more diversity in city contracts and home ownership efforts. Projects like this are exactly what we need to focus on to bridge a gap in wealth and opportunities our communities have faced for generations. I know firsthand as a real estate professional and a lifelong Bostonian that home ownership is the fastest way to build wealth that will lift up not just the individual, but generations. We're nearing the end of Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and the Breast Cancer Research Foundation estimates that over 300,000 women in the U.S. will be diagnosed with breast cancer by the end of the year. BNN correspondent Lainey Broussard spoke with one organization fighting the disease head on. Energy is high tonight because right behind me, 30 fighters are gathering together to knock out cancer. Literally. For the fighters who step into this ring, they're battling one of the biggest fights of their lives. Yeah, we're fighting, yeah. I have an opponent that I have to fight at the end of the day, but at the end of the day, we're all doing it for a cause. The, lo the last words Malia said before she passed were, I've got this. They're trying to knock out breast cancer through fundraising and awareness. Each year, Haymakers for Hope puts on a boxing match with fighters who have either survived or have family battling cancer. Everybody has to support people that are struggling. Founder Julie Kelly battled Hodgkin lymphoma when she was 20. She says boxing is the perfect sport to illustrate the fight that thousands of women and men go through every day. What's amazing about women boxing is you, there's, it's a sisterhood. It is just all walks of life. Um, all ages, all sizes, and everyone, we, it, there's such a small group of people, of, of women, that you just kind of come together and you know that someone's making you better. The Breast Cancer Research Foundation says breast cancer is the most common cancer found in American women. And it's estimated that more than 40,000 women will die of breast cancer by the end of the year. Gabby Vaccarizo lost her grandma to cancer when she was young. Now. She said she's fighting on behalf of those who lost their own fight with cancer. There was a way that some of the research, some of the treatment here in the U.S. was able to uh, bring it to Ecuador. Um, maybe my grandma would have survived a little bit or at least pushed through that. As the night came to a close, standing right outside the ring were the families of fighters who say they couldn't have been prouder. Especially that everybody's doing here for just for the cause yes, for cancer and all that. Like everybody yes. coming together, it's just such a peaceful process. Organizers told us the event ended up raising $500,000.
And fighters like Gabby hope the money will go towards furthering cancer research. In Fenway for BNN, I'm Lainey Broussard. Rowers flocked to the Charles River over the weekend for the world's largest three-day rowing race, the 58th annual Head of the Charles Regatta. BNN's Alex Dowd discovered the diversity of this year's rowing teams. This year's Head of the Charles Regatta featured 11,000 rowers from nearly 30 different countries. The director of racing for the regatta says that he's seeing more diversity in the competition each year. Nyla LaFontant rows for Dominican University. When she started rowing two years ago, she felt like she didn't belong. So at times, I did feel out of place. It was very rare for me to see another black girl in rowing. More than 80% of rowers registered with U.S. rowing are white. Community engagement officer Jenny Trays says that the rowing community is changing. I go to the head of the Charles and I see that there are pe more people of color. There are more people with disabilities. Organizers say that this year was the first time where the head of the Charles had a crew made up of entirely Latina rowers. There were also crews of only black men, as well as one made up of openly trans and non-binary rowers. My first regatta ever, so... Um... Kamal Carter runs a group working to make sports like rowing more inclusive. When people see just one coach, one student athlete who they can relate to or identify with that's outside the majority, then maybe it might inspire them. La Fontante wants to be that person. The very first all black women's eight rode ahead of the Charles. And seeing that a couple solidified like you're here to show other black girls I can go into sports that don't typically have people like me. One of the parents and coaches that I spoke to reminded me that rowing is not a cheap sport. In addition to entrance fees to regattas, membership fees, and coaching fees, to get one of these boats around me, which are called racing shells, you're going to have to shell out at least $10,000. For BNN, I'm Alex Dowd. The City of Boston and the environmental organization Action for Equity are joining forces to achieve shared community goals of sustainability and equity for all residents of Boston. On Monday, green and racial equity crossed at the Green Equity Partnership event in Dorchester. The City of Boston and the Commonwealth of Massachusetts have collaborated with Action for Equity, an organization focused on making policies to address racial and class inequities through a new program that aims to uplift communities of color as well as creating new clean energy jobs. It's about making sure that communities and specifically black and brown communities that have often been um, struggled to get work in the construction trades, have struggled at times to get work in others of these new fields that are being created because of climate change, because of the need to retrofit. Um, if you weren't already in the game, sometimes it's very, very hard to get in. And so I think this partnership is really important because it's about training folks from this neighborhood, from surrounding neighborhoods who are already directly impacted by climate change to be at the forefront of the solutions. The goal is to train and employ BIPOC residents as electricians in HERS rating, heat pump installation, and other clean energy and decarbonization roles. Green jobs are growing and high paying, and the Green Equity Partnership is determined to bring more people of color into the economic expansion. It's important for the jobs that, that people perform for them to be paid well, to be able to sustain their families, so that they don't have to have two or three jobs, you know, that they can keep up with the economic trends. It's important that with the change in um, the climate change and, and the, the need for new energy sources, that as the transition takes place, 
and the money is paid to the workforce that our people in this community become empowered first with the skill set to be able to perform that work and secondly to be able to get the wages necessary to sustain their families and remain in this community. Job equity is crucial, but only one piece of the puzzle. Action for Equity also focuses on ensuring affordable, environmentally sustainable housing and transportation for lower income communities and people of color. As we work towards our net zero goals, we need to do it in a way so that those who are most impacted by the climate crisis also achieve the most benefits from the clean energy transition. And we need to specifically look at how we can recruit and train and employ communities of color so that they are achieving the benefits of this work and this clean energy transition. People of color, BIPOC people, need to get the opportunity to get into these uh, new emerging jobs like heating, uh, wind farms, um, uh, clean energy jobs. Because you know, part of the landscape of Boston is becoming so expensive and we need quality jobs that will provide people living wages so they can continue to live in Boston. One of the consequences of not having these quality, high-paying jobs are people being forced to move us out of Boston because they can no longer live here. This week, Roxbury is a step closer to realizing comprehensive substance abuse care as construction gets started at the Z Building. On Tuesday, the Dimmick Center celebrated the groundbreaking of Boston's first clinical stabilization services for men. The center will renovate and repurpose the Dr. Marie Zacheska building to provide much needed post-detox support. There's individuals who come to our detox and now we're able to come right across the street. For so many men, that's a challenge because if they don't have this immediate opportunity and we have to send them to south of Boston or north of Boston, many of them lose the opportunity to have this continuous approach to their treatment. And we do know that if we can keep someone in treatment for 90 days in a structured program, the odds of truly getting into recovery are so much higher. The renovated building will offer 32 beds, mental health services, and intensive clinical services. Construction is anticipated to be completed by June 2025. City leaders and recovery specialists are excited for what's in store, grateful to the Yaki Foundation, which has provided $2.5 million to expand addiction treatment. For over 80 years, the Yaki's approached philanthropy in this manner, private, quiet, and always deflecting the glory of the spotlight to others. And this project is especially important to us because we realize that you're giving the tools to people who need to move forward with recovery, but that's a very private, quiet journey that they need to go on by themselves with as much support as we can give them as possible. So we're certain that this project, the leaders, the missions of providing state-of-the-art clinical stabilization program for men is exactly the type of thing that the Yaquis would support if they were with us today. Department of Public Health reports that opioid-related deaths have been on the rise since 2019 in the state, increasing by 36 percent. The shortage of clinical stabilization programs have been a barrier in the process of recovery for many, allowing men to cycle in and out of detox in a vicious cycle. There are gaps um, in the continuum of care for people with substance use disorder. People go in at the entry level um, of the continuum and then typically don't have a place to go from there. Um, we know that the longer people stay in treatment and stay engaged, the better the outcomes are. Um, this will allow us to keep people engaged and keep people in a program for longer. 
Um, Dimmick is expanding their services. Uh, there are not many beds like this um, in the Boston area. And so adding this key piece of the treatment continuum will really help people with substance use disorder. The Dimmick Center has set up a temporary stopgap to meet the current need for men's treatment and are hopeful for the thousands who will be helped once Z-Building houses all level of addiction treatment under one roof. The U.S. spends over $30 billion every year on the foster care system. But even with the endless amounts of money being poured into foster care programs, over 20,000 young people age out of the system each year, putting them at significantly high risk of becoming homeless. The Treehouse Foundation and Re-Envisioning Foster Care Champions have created a driving force behind a nationwide movement for change. Several champions joined us over Zoom to discuss the upcoming Re-Envisioning Foster Care Conference and what changes need to be made to better the future of the foster care system. The ninth and national re-envisioning foster care in America conference is will be happening uh, November 3rd and the 4th this year at Edward M. Kennedy Institute. What are some of the topics that will be covered at the conference? Well, we'll, we'll uh, be participating in several different workshops, panels. Um, I will be sitting on a panel with a couple other um, child welfare leaders who uh, work in the space, who were in foster care as children, and we'll be really um, diving into the barriers that are that we need to overcome in this field, in this system, to uh, actualize the change that we have long needed um, in uh, child welfare. So I'm really excited about that. As well, I'll, as well I will be facilitating a panel of elders who have uh, stepped forward and have been part of an intergenerational community in, in, um, in Eastern Mass that's expanding to, to Boston, um, who are also doing their part in trying to reimagine and contribute to uh, foster care change and innovation, so. Wonderful, and how about you, Justin? Uh, that was a great summary overall. I think uh, also we'll be working toward a shared vision and an alignment around um, what alumni of the foster care system would like to see for the future of the system. So we have talked about it potentially resulting in a white paper or some other um, takeaway, I think, to be determined, but we want to make sure that the work of the conference goes forward and helps inform future change. Something unique about the conference is that every uh, presenter is not only an expert in the field, but the expertise is informed by their lived experience. Uh, can you share your experience with foster care and how you've been able to give back as a Refka champion? Wow. Um, well, you know, f f first of all, I think this is a, uh, I, I'm sure I can speak for all of us and including Justin. I mean, it's, it, it's the first time I've ever in my career of 25 years been part of a an opportunity, a conference where, um, you know, everyone that you are in space with presenting with has, a, has an experience like you, right? And um, I think that when you are somebody who experienced foster care, your, your world feels pretty small in that there are very few people who, who get it, who have lived the experience. And so I think first and foremost, um, I expect that this conference is just going to rejuvenate some of us who've been doing this for a really long time. Um, and it also provides an opportunity to, uh, as somebody who is in my late 40s, um, it's been around for a little while, 
it also provides an opportunity to provide some level of mentorship and community uh, to other folks who, um, you know, want to see the want to see change in this system, um, uh, and in and I think in large part because they want future generations of young people. Um, and their families, ideally not to end up in this system, but if, if, if they are in the system to have a very different experience, actually being part of a system that provides the actual support and, um, and care that, that children and families need if, if um, they end up being part of the child welfare system. So it's just a really exciting opportunity. Uh, something I want to add is that this is a conference and and the Rufka cohort is a group that recognizes the diversity of leadership and lived experience among the foster care population. Um, so this group is diverse in all ways in terms of age, race, ethnicity, gender, geography, and experience in foster care. Um, Charles and I happen to both be from Boston and uh, and maybe overlapping in some parts of identity, but the, the group is diverse in all those ways. Um, so I'll, I'll say a little bit about my personal experience as well. Um, I entered foster care because of my birth mother's mental illness. She did her best to raise me. My birth father had passed away um, and at times was able to do a great job, but at other times wasn't able to. So I was in kinship care and in foster care um, and was adopted when I was nine years old and was fortunate to have a lot of supportive relationships, to have great schools that were supportive, to have, to have a lot of things that were helpful along the way. Um, my birth family had some resources as well, uh, but I know many children who experience foster care don't have some of those same privileges and opportunities that I had. And so when I was in my senior in college, I started a mentoring program for foster children. Um, and it was through that work that I came to know Judy and I continue to serve on the board there. Uh, and my work today is with an organization that supports people from birth to old age through direct service and work across the community. Uh, but part of our work is that about 20% of those in our early education and school age programs are connected with the Department of Children and Families currently. And then we also have a federal grant um, working to help reduce the need for children to enter into child welfare. Which is, which is really important, Faith. And, and it's something that will be discussed a lot at um, this year's conference, uh, which takes place, as you said, next week at, um, at the Edward M. Kennedy Institute. And next Thursday, uh, REFCA champions from all over the country will be flying into Boston to share their, uh, their wisdom and their expertise. Um, REFCA champions hail from Hawaii, Alaska, uh, Washington State, Oregon, California, Florida. People will be flying in from DC and Maryland and Tennessee um, and Arizona. Uh, people will be coming from all over to share their expertise with one another and all conference attendees. That's amazing. So you really get the perspective and the diversity of, of uh, leaders from all across the country. Absolutely. And can you share, uh, Charles and Justin, what are your visions for child welfare? You want to take that one, Justin, first? Sure. Thank you, Charles. Um, so I think part of, uh, to what Judy said, part of the work that we're doing with this grant, I would ideally want to reduce the need for children to enter into child welfare in the first place. And um, as Judy has eloquently said in her work, a lot of that is about addressing poverty and racism 
um, and just giving families the supports that they need to help their children thrive. Um, and in addition to that, I would like to see a child welfare system that wraps children with many more supports and strong relationships. So one of the ironies about being in foster care is that children are moving between homes and settings, um, often changing schools, changing coaches, losing connections at a time when they're meeting more people than many other children meet, but they often end up with many fewer connections. So I would like us to have a system in the future where we identify all of the caring adults in a child's life, ideally before that child is ever removed from care um, from their birth parents custody. Ideally, working with those supports to support the birth parents so that the child can successfully be in their birth family's home. Um, but if they need to be removed to then be able to look to that existing natural network of support for them and identify who there might be a placement, who there might help to bring them to practice if they need to go to practice, who might provide care on the weekend so that the person they're staying with can have some respite um, so that ideally we can have children be in a permanent, stable situation much sooner than is often true today um, and have many fewer lost relationships in the process. Yeah, I, I think that, um... You know, I just I just uh, had a conversation with our uh, our chief child advocate in the state before I jumped on this call, and um, you know the way the system is currently constructed will never work. It just won't. Um, at the end of the day, we need to shrink this system um, as small as possible, right? Um, and we we need to find a way to um, put as many resources into families as Justin alluded to and Judy alluded to. Um, and what most of our families have in common um, here in Massachusetts um, are they are living in poverty. They are struggling to keep their basic, you know, the, you know, they're struggling to have their basic needs met. And as a parent myself, um, with some level of resources, uh, when my mental or physical wellness is is not there, it is really, really hard to, to parent. And if you are constantly living in scarcity scarcity mode, um, it's very difficult to ensure that the, the the needs of your children are met. And and sometimes it's just the basic needs. But if you want to advocate for their educational supports, or if that child has medical issues that you need to be advocating for, it is just such a challenge to be able to 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 do that. And so we really need to move the child welfare system um, from sort of child well-being to family well-being. But at the end of the day, the child protection system is not the right system to do that. We really have to invest in all of our other systems and then make the child protection system, like I said, as small as possible. And if children end up in it, then and we we make the decision as a state to become the custodian or parent of that child, we need to do a much, much better job. Um, which means that we need to ensure holistically that they're being very well cared for. And it's one of the reasons why I work for CASA, because that's what we do. We appoint advocates to children who are court involved to make sure that child is getting the quality of care that we would demand for our own children. And for our viewers who want to learn more about fostering or about the REFCA conference and attend, how can they do so? 
uh, they can go to the Treehouse Foundation website, uh, treehousefoundation.net, and um, the conference information is right there on the landing page. They can register there. They can read all about the two days that are chock full of uh, REFCA champion presentations um, and uh, see what, what delights them. I feel like for me, when I first entered the world of child welfare as a foster parent uh, 25 years ago, I really knew nothing. And I felt like it was all of the folks with lived experience who taught me the reality um, of both the world of child welfare, but also how I could step up and be allies to them and be champions so that we are, we're, we're really doing the right things and we're uh, supporting kids and families in all the right ways. Thank you for tuning in, Boston. That's our broadcast for tonight. For BNN News, I'm Faith Mafedon, and I'll see you next Friday. Thank you.